Hello, readers. Coming up, it's episode number 217 with Julie Bogart on Raising Critical Thinkers. First, I wanted to encourage you to check out our website at booksonpod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the health and fitness, music, parenting, psychology, or science and medicine category for episode number 161 with Joan Koenig on The Musical Child. My name is Joan Koenig. I wrote The Musical Child, using the power of music to raise children who are happy, healthy, and whole. You're listening to Books on Pod with Trey, Trey Elling. Books on Pod, Books on Pod, Trey, Trey Hello, readers. Julie Bogart is a parenting and education expert and creator of the award-winning Brave Writer Program, which teaches writing and language arts to thousands of families each year. She's also the author of The Brave Learner and her newest book titled Raising Critical Thinkers, A Parent's Guide to Growing Wise Kids in the Digital Age. Julie, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you, Trey. I'm glad to be here. It's my pleasure. So what was the inspiration for this book? Well, in fact, the internet. <laughs> so back in the 1990s, when I was in my mid-30s, along came World Wide Web. Uh, and suddenly, a homeschooling mother, stay-at-home mom with my five kids, I just saw this amazing opportunity to get input into parenting and education and some stimulation for when I felt bored. And I hopped online with the expectation that I would join these homeschool discussion boards and we would all be similarly minded, that we would have similar viewpoints, that we would, you know, we were mostly from a homogeneous background, you know, stay-at-home mothers, most of us were white, most of us were heterosexual and married, most of us were from a similar religious background. So I expected just a lot of good-natured sharing. And what happened is we wound up in these sort of bloodbaths over things like breastfeeding and whether or not to potty train before age two and cloth diapers or, you know, using paper diapers. And then even in the more complex subjects like theological positions or, or political positions, I watched women who, if I saw them at a park day, would have been friendly and kind and careful, um, just wield very strong opinions from behind this keyboard. And I suddenly got to thinking like, why is that? Why do we feel so much permission to be so dogmatic about our own viewpoints? Where did that come from? And why is it persisting? And of course, in the early days of the internet, we didn't know about trolls. We hadn't experienced this sort of bludgeoning of one another with our confidence. And so it's taken time to kind of figure out how do we do this together? How do we have differences of opinion? How do we understand true facts and information that should influence our opinions? What creates the openness and space to even do that? So I've been thinking about these ideas for 30 years. I went to grad school kind of in pursuit of figuring out some of my own crisis of beliefs that were generated by my online participation. And it culminated in this book. 
Well, although the book is meant for parents to help raise kids who are critical thinkers in the digital age, there are plenty of things that I read throughout these pages that I think could uh, really help benefit me and plenty of other adults as well. Is that uh, kind of a, uh, a side hope for you, for those who are listening, that maybe they open their minds a little bit more as well? Well, in a, in a way, it's a stealth objective, isn't it? Because if we're asking parents to raise critical thinkers, I have to make sure the parents are critical thinkers, right? So it was a tricky book to write because there were those two levels happening at all times. But really what I wanted to do was alert adults to the fact that this idea of critical thinking is not just about attacking somebody else's viewpoint. We're actually having to surface our own natural tendency to double down on our own beliefs. And where does that come from? Why is it that the average American, and I would dare say the average English speaker, I don't want to speak for other cultures, but uh, I've been around a lot of English speaking people from all over the world. We do tend to put a lot of faith in our perception of reality. And we are such fans of our own thinking that all of us think we are critical thinkers and it's the other people out there that aren't. It's sort of like saying, I'm a great driver. Doesn't everyone think they're good at driving and they think everyone else is terrible? So it's a little bit with that in mind that I designed the way the book is structured. So I give a lot of data information, redefinitions, um, thought puzzles, ways to think about thinking. I use a lot of anecdotes um, as well as research. And then I give you the tools to do with your children. So it's got both things happening at all times. Yeah, those exercises are such a great tool. And by the way, I know everybody says they're a great driver, but you really have not uh, been with a great driver until you've ridden shotgun with me uh, <laughs> behind the wheel in this city that is full of bad drivers here in Austin, Texas. Now, this book <laughs> is broken up into three different parts. Part one is what is a critical thinker? So I ask you now, is there a succinct way to explain what exactly a critical thinker is, Julie? Yes, actually there is. And I'm going to actually read you a definition from my own, uh, my own book because I feel like it is a lot more succinct. Um, so let me pull that up really quick. I is, to do it, that. is it a toolkit we cultivate to help us skillfully live? <laughs> That's a pretty good definition. We could start with that. But honestly, what I think of when I think of critical thinking is the capacity to imagine and evaluate evidence while at the same time noticing bias as it kicks into gear and then giving space to other perspectives to show up and have a relationship to it. So it's sort of three steps. You end up hearing the information and you're sort of evaluating it automatically. So you pause and you think, well, which part of this evaluation is just coming from my preconception? my understanding of how that relates to my world. And then once I've kind of done both of those, I can do some vetting of the information and finally take a tentative position. You know, how it appears to me now that I've gone through that process, but not a once for all time decision that can never be revised. So for me, critical thinking involves the dialogue between a self and the information that is coming into my space or my field. 
And a starting point for thinking critically, uh, as you alluded to a couple of answers ago, is realizing one's own shortcomings, a process that you label as taking an academic selfie. What does mm. this consist of? And is there a good way to help kids to do this? Yeah. So we so often have the camera lens pointing at the other guy. So I recommend flipping the camera around and actually taking a look at where your ideas come from. There is um, a, a grid that I share in the book when we're in the chapter on identity that helps us determine where all of our beliefs come from. So the way that I conceive of it is this. We come into the world as an individual and we are forming our ideas based on our personal perceptions. I'm hungry, I need food. I'm tired, I wanna go to sleep. Uh, I don't wanna do schoolwork, I just wanna play, right? Like whatever those personal perceptions are that meet your immediate needs and your sense of well being are what we attach to first. But then we join a community. And these communities initially are our families, the people who raise us, but then we join a school community. We might join our age mate community. We might join a faith community or a political community. And those communities do a really great job of setting up what I would call a logic story about how you should behave, not necessarily what you want to do. So you've got a parent who is seeing this child who says, I hate washing my hands. I don't like the water. The parent comes in with the community narrative, which is you must wash your hands to stay well. These invisible things called germs that you can't see, stick to your fingers, get on your food, go in your body and make you sick. And so we come in with this like, parent propaganda system, right? Where we draw on our authorities and we pick our community logic story and then we indoctrinate our children. I, that's all very um, vitriolic language, I understand. But the point is, this is what we do. You know, if you're trying to have a certain look of body, you don't simply let your personal perceptions win the day. You join some fitness community or a diet community or a health and wellness community. And you allow this community's narrative to give you a different story that helps you overcome your natural perceptions. All of us are being guided by both things at all time, our personal experiences versus the narrative that we have adopted from either science or religion or politics or our families. And as we start to notice those, they're not good or bad. They're not always right or wrong. As we start to notice those, we can re recognize when we're being triggered. So one of the things I ask parents to say when they're doing their own reading and when they're helping their kids, let's say, do reading for school or anything they're learning, I always want you to ask the question, what do I hope will be true? So you open the New York Times, you're reading an editorial, and it's by a guy you know you don't agree with. I want you to ask before you read it, what do I hope will be true? Do I hope that he's going to make a claim that I can rail against? Do I hope that he's changed his mind? Do I hope that he no longer affiliates with the community I hate? Because the second you surface what you hope will be true, you've started to do that academic selfie work. You're starting to recognize how you dialogue with information. You write that, quote, insightful thinking means recognizing that every fact lives inside a story and that education should be like Russian nesting dolls. How so? So when we state a fact, a fact is an irreducible item, right? Like water boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit or 100 degrees Celsius. 
but it isn't the fact that we usually stay with. It's what we say about the fact. So we might decide whether or not this liquid should boil based on whatever our viewpoint is. Right now, when we talk about climate change, we spend a lot of time talking about facts. The climate is going up in temperature, but it's what we mean by citing that fact that creates all of the drama in our relationships. Are we glad the temperature is going up? Do we think it's something to worry about? These are the questions that we're asking about the numbers. Um, an example I give is, in the book is that the bombing of Hiroshima took place, you know, in 1945, United States at the end of World War II bombing Japan. But if you read it in a textbook, sometimes it'll say something like, it was a necessary act of war. You might read an alternative interpretation that says it was an unjustified act of war. When a child is reading the fact, the story it sits in is going to shape their imagination about whether or not they should feel good about this bombing. What we often say is that bias means it's not true, but that's actually inaccurate. The facts are true. We did bomb Japan on that date in that town with an atomic bomb. All of that's true, but it's what we say about it that actually shapes our imagination about the data. So every fact has storytellers talking about it at all times. And it's our job to say, says who? Who's the storyteller? Whose version of the story is not a part of this conversation? Should we include it? What does it mean to the conversation to include it? Yeah, a, uh, an interesting example from my own life with that, Julie, uh, happened last night. I have a seven-year-old daughter and a five-year-old son. The seven-year-old is wickedly smart. She reads books that are hundreds of pages of long, comprehends them well, uh, is a great critical thinker for her age, and also yes. somebody who asks a lot of questions. Well, mm. last night at the dinner table, she brought up Martin Luther King Jr. because that's uh, the figure that, we, they, uh, that they were learning about in her first grade class earlier in the day. And she, she was asking about the guy who killed Martin Luther King Jr. And me having a better grasp of uh, what may have happened in that instance versus what uh, public schools may be teaching in textbooks, uh, I say, well, did you know that Martin Luther King's family doesn't believe that that guy is actually guilty of shooting Martin Luther King Jr., that they actually believe that it was the government who did so? And she said she, she got really wide-eyed, and she said, really? And I said, Yes. And then the conversation moved on pretty quickly. So I'm a little bit concerned. I may be getting an email from her teacher today with my daughter asking about something that some people may consider to be a, 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 a conspiracy theory. And actually, that is one of the things our kids are having to face in a much more dramatic way than when I was a child, for example. I mean, I remember one of my good friends in high school was all about the JFK shooting, right? So he got these old movies, you know, I'm old, I'm 60. So this was the 1970s and he got this whole little following and there was a special JFK club at the school. I mean, it became a thing. But that's very different than like when my kids were in their teens in the 2000s. And I remember one of my sons coming to me and he had seen this video that basically led him to the Illuminati, right? But he was 15. He had no ability to recognize the difference between that and what he was reading in school or hearing at the dinner table. But here's the thing. I was excited about it. I was like, okay, the first day that you start to think about a conspiracy theory is the first day you're actually thinking critically. Because as a person, we are conditioned 
to accept the most underst most well understood version of any event or any experience because our community is so big and powerful so the government is big and powerful our religious organizations are big and powerful so the day that somebody says well maybe what it looks like isn't how it really is is a really big moment for a mind now it doesn't mean that they're meant to believe all that content but it was fascinating for me at the time my son was like wait capitalism isn't always good, you know, like this sort of moment in time. And interestingly, uh, he's gone on to be a human rights lawyer as an adult. And of course, looks back on that one video and laughs about it, but it, it piqued his curiosity. How are things different than they appear according to other groups of people? And I think this is a moment in time where the internet is amplifying all that. What we want to do with our kids is give them some tools. And so that's why I wrote this book. I want them to go in armed. Like one of the first things that I asked my son when he was watching this movie was, well, who made it? What do we know about them? How can we understand more about them? Who thinks they're a threat? Who thinks they're a salvation? Like, should we be rooting for them or rooting against them? Who says which one and why? What agendas are behind that? That's what critical thinking is. You don't have to tell your kids, yeah, that the Illuminati, we don't believe in them. You don't have to start there. Help them actually do the process of asking questions that give them the power to make those judgments themselves. You're touching on dispassionate curiosity there. People can buy the book to read more about that. Rote learning is the foundation of most public education, but having kids memorize info does very little for problem solving and critical thinking. What is uh, what is problem-posing education, Julie, as an alternative to the standard method? Ah, it's my favorite part of the book to talk about, so thanks for bringing it up. So as I was doing research, uh, two of the writers that I really loved were Paolo Freire and Bell Hooks. They both bring a critical lens to the traditional model of education. Both of them come from marginalized communities, so they were considering sort of this authoritarian structure of the school in kind of a fresh way. And it dovetailed nicely with my own home education background, where we are always challenging kind of the standard operating procedure of school. One of the theories then that I came to after doing all this research, it's a bold claim on my part, and I'm happy to engage it with other thinkers. I'm not saying this is the final version, verdict on learning. But I do believe that the way the school system is designed is that there are leaders of education, we call them teachers, principals, school boards, textbooks, who have the right answers. And they disseminate the information. Paolo Freire calls it the banking model of education, where we assume the child comes to school with an empty brain, an open bank account, and then the authorities make deposits of information, and then they make withdrawals through the form of testing. The testing processes that we use are right and wrong answer-based. And what that means is 30 kids in a classroom take the same test and they all must get the same right answers in order to get A's. And if you get a wrong answer, you're not gonna get as good a grade. So there is an actual answer that we are all expected to agree is correct. This model becomes so common and has become such a deep learned experience as a youngster that I honestly believe when the internet came along and I got online with these women from across the country and I expected us to agree, I would put out what I thought was a fact and cite an authority. And I thought that was enough. 
that should be the end of the discussion, right? Because in class it was. In class, you don't get to debate with the teacher about your interpretation of what the question meant to you. You have to accept their view. So for me, problem posing education, what Paulo Freire calls the antidote to this banking model is actually taking into account the person doing the answering, not just the person doing the questioning. What do we bring with us? Our background language and knowledge from our families, our socioeconomic level, our race, our religious affiliation, the books we've read or not read, our personal competencies, our learning challenges. These influence and shape how we respond to those questions on the tests, how we digest the information. Um, do you have time for me to give the illustration from the book with the multiple choice test? Yeah, please do. I love that example. So one of my girlfriends and I, were, she works for me, we were having this long conversation about this theory of mine, about how I felt like multiple choice testing was so dangerous. And she said, well, you know, this actually happened with my son. He took a test where there was an illustration of a tree on the page. And the question was, what is the proper tool of measurement for this tree? And there was a little illustration on the page of a tree. So the first, uh, the first answer, letter A was feet, B was centimeters, C was quartz, and D was kilometers. Now we can eliminate quartz and kilometers pretty easily, right? But the test was saying that the correct measurement would be letter A, feet, because the test creator was expecting the student to imagine a tree out in the woods. And so feet seems like the right measurement tool because it's a tall tree in the woods. But my friend's son picked centimeters because he was looking at a drawing and in his mind, the drawing needed to be measured with centimeters. He took it literally. Now he got it wrong on his test. And when he explained it to his mother and she met with the principal, the principal said, wow, that's an interpretation I hadn't thought of. And he actually intimated, I don't have this in the book, he kind of intimated that the child had a learning challenge. Oh and this gosh. mother went to advocate for him like, uh, no, he's actually perceiving the question in a way that the test did not anticipate. Here's the thing, though. When I looked at the question, I immediately thought, how is feet the only right answer? Because even a tall tree in the woods could be measured with centimeters. Now, there could be reasons to do that. Perhaps you are tracing how many beetles have bore holes in this tree and you're using centimeters to measure that. So the question itself had two right answers. Moreover, what if you have a student whose family raises bonsai? Is it possible that that student seeing the drawing immediately thinks, oh, they mean a bonsai tree, I'm picking centimeters. Could we know absolutely that all students would assume that a tree that's illustrated is big? This is where our own bias as test creators and educators so often undermines what a student is trying to learn and can express to you if given the opportunity. Now, I was a history major at UCLA. I have a master's in theology. I steadfastly avoided any class that needed multiple choice answers because I can see around the corners. I'm always asking the additional information and it hamstrings me. I'm not an engineer. I'm not looking for just precision in measurement. 
So these are the kinds of aspects of traditional schooling that I think actually limit our capacity for critical thinking and make us feel smarter than we need to feel. We don't need to feel smart. We need to feel insightful. That's what we're looking for. The illustration of the iron was another good example there. Again, people uh, can check the book out to uh, find out more about that one. You really do offer up some great recommendations for parents to incorporate things in their homes to massage a child's critical thinking. Uh, my household has already started to incorporate the great wall of questions at the oh, dinner table every night with some resounding successes through a couple of days. For those who have never heard of this before, what exactly is the great wall of questions? I love that. Oh, I'm so happy to hear it. I, now I want to know what questions were on your wall. So I'll explain what it is. And then you've got to tell me. I will. So the great wall of questions is meant to generate for kids the capacity to sit with not knowing. So a lot of times parents act like the answer key of life. Child says, what is this? How do I do this? Where do I go for this? And we immediately answer them with the authoritative answer. But insight grows when we sit with a thought, when we allow a question to ruminate inside of us, almost like, you know, marinating a steak before you barbecue it. And so I tried this practice with my kids where for several days a week, when they asked a question, I just wrote it on a post-it note and I stuck it to our sliding glass door and I didn't answer it. I just say, wow, it's a great question. I left a stack of post-it notes and pens out so that the ones who could read and write could actually contribute more even when I wasn't around. Now, these questions can be things like, what's a black hole? You know, we all love that question because it means our kids are really doing school. But what about questions like, why did Johnny get the Bluetooth brush when mom knew I wanted it, right? Like, let's put them all on there. Let's put on like, what time is ballet? Like, let's get all the questions on the wall for a week maybe three days if you have small kids, a week is a long time. But if you've got five kids, a week is great. And so on Sunday night or one of the nights when you're all gonna be home for dinner, now bring the laptop to the table or your phone and just start peeling them off and talking about them. You don't have to answer them ironclad. You can just say, yeah, I don't really know what a black hole is. What do we think it is? Uh, what do we think it does? Oh, well, let's look up and see some information. Let's see if they have a video of a black hole. You know, just start ruminating, showing them the keyword you put in the online search. When you get to the one about the toothbrush, maybe this is an opportunity to talk about, you know, how mom is too efficient <laughs> and maybe needs to ask a question like, what color do you want, right? Like, let's use this as a chance to kind of go further than just being an answer key of life for our kids. So some examples from last night's dinner table, Julie. What are the Junior Olympics? Can you tickle me? Which uh, allowed me to explain why I love doing tickle time with my young children because it uh, allows me a certain closeness with them. And I love it. they obviously get to laugh a whole lot. And uh, there's going to reach a point where tickle time is no longer acceptable. That's right. Uh, will you play We Are the Champions when we were driving to school in the morning? So we talked about what we liked about that song and uh, how, the, uh, how the stomping beat goes. And then also, can we play the Switch today, the Nintendo Switch, which leads me me to my next question perfect it's hard not to talk about kids without discussing video games has research found that kids who are passionate about video games struggle with being engaged in the real world including obviously learning to become critical thinkers so the research changes over time i invite parents to stay current with it 
try not to cite studies from 20 years ago before we had social media and don't really understand it. But the modern research, the most current that I could find, and I spent a lot of time vetting it just in case people wonder, uh, is that a certain amount of video gameplay actually strengthens critical thinking. In fact, the study I cite in there, and you can go look it up because I include it in the endnotes, states that seven to 10 hours of gameplay per week is the optimal amount for kids who are about nine and older. It actually shows that children who play video games at that level are better at emotional self-regulation than kids who play no video games at all. Now, I found that part just staggering because in the homeschooling community, we can be a little um, ludite, you know, a little anti-technology and advancement. We romanticize the past. And so there are a lot of parents who think the solution is to just not play them. But actually, if you think about it, think about the times when you're stressed out, what do you do? I take a walk and listen to a podcast. I turn on music. I play solitaire on my phone. Uh, I play cards with my boyfriend. Like I do have tools that I go to. Children go to gaming. That is the thing that is one of those tools for them. But not only that, they are developing a skill set that is very valuable to them in online life. They get to read and write at a really speedy level. I love to remind parents, more children are writing today than in the history of humankind because of online life because of gaming, because of their connection on a screen. Um, and then they also learn all kinds of critical thinking skills, resource management, calculating. I remember I was teaching my biggest gaming son how to do percents, decimals, and fractions in seventh grade. And we got to, to percents. He goes, oh, no, I already know how to calculate that. I was like, no, you don't. I haven't taught you. He's like, mom, I have to calculate my life that is remaining in my games every day. I figured it out. I am not going to run out of life. I know what percentage life I'll lose every time I get hit by this, by this, by this. I was staggered. I said, well, if you know percents, you already know decimals and fractions. So let's just sit down and you show me. And he converted it all today. He's an IT specialist. He's fantastic at math. It's staggering to me how much we think books teach when actually these technological tools are often a shortcut to many of the things we value. And I think that transitions nicely into part two. Real quick, you said that the optimal amount of video games for a kid nine or older, according to current research, is seven hours a week? Seven to 10 hours a week. Now, interestingly, they organized it by not at all, three to seven, seven to 10, and then 10 and above. And interestingly, it was the 10 and above group that was in second place. So very bizarre to me that even more video gaming had a beneficial effect on some kids. I will throw in this caveat. It is possible for gaming to tip over into addiction. There is a certain percentage. It's a tiny percentage of the billions of people who play games. What I want to caution you is to not treat gaming like something you're afraid of, because that often leads to this sort of obsessive need to protect their gaming time. So set some good boundaries, decide what time of day kids can game, thoroughly enjoy it, watch them play, ask them how many levels they beat, laugh with them about their failures and successes, and then turn it off. You know, the evening is when we hang out as a family or the morning is when we eat breakfast. Like you can have some rules, but don't be antagonistic. 
that would be my main suggestion to parents. We have fun, uh, fun playing as a family at times as well, yes. racing the uh, Mario Karts around. All right, part two is read, experience, encounter, a real education. Why is reading crucial for critical thinking? So reading is the chief way we get most of our information, right? We spend the most time um, looking at screens, reading books. School expects a lot of reading. So we're under the impression that being a good reader means you'll be a very well-educated person. I would say this. Reading enables you to digest a lot of information that is necessary to a good education. But learning actually requires two more components. The first one is what I call experience, actually having an experience, a direct experience. And then the, the third one is what I call encounter, which means destabilizing your power and sense of control to be overwhelmed so you can overturn some of your preconceptions. So let's go through each of them. Imagine you wanted to learn about the violin. So I assigned you a whole bunch of books. You learned the history. You know who the famous violinists are. You know how violins are made. You know the most beautiful songs that have ever been written for the violin and who wrote them. If you have never heard a violin played, is reading enough? Uh, no, it's not. Why not is close. that? Why? Um, because the importance with the violin is the sound that it makes. And if you don't know the sound that it makes, you can't fully comprehend what a violin is. That's exactly right. And so the next obvious step is to go to the symphony. But are there other ways that the violin gets played? Absolutely. There are. Yeah. Yeah. There's bluegrass. There's violin added to hip hop. I mean, there are lots of uses of violin. There's violin solos, violins in a group. So we can add all this richness of experience for our children. And now they have a better grasp of violin. That would be the experience level. Encounter is when I put the violin in your hand and I say, now play it. Now, everything you thought you knew about violin is out the window because your fingers are going to fumble. You don't really know how to read music. You've never been taught how to hold the bow and make the sounds. Encounter is the moment where all the learning you've had up until this point will not save you. In each area, when we are learning, we have to remember to be humble if we don't have an encounter level experience with that topic. For instance, I'll be on these political discussion boards, comment sections of news organizations, and people will be popping off about some country they've never traveled to and how the government should handle this crisis for those people. And for me, they are feeling well-read, but have they ever spoken the language? Have they ever met the person? Have they ever had boots on the ground in the location? I studied the history of Islam and Arabic in college and was planning to consider a move to North Africa. And I thought I really understood what I was getting into from my studies. I got to North Africa and visited for a summer to do a research trip to try and make the decision. And that was a great experience. I was with Americans. We were eating the food. I was speaking French. My Arabic wasn't good enough yet. I got a rich experience made the decision to move there, oh my gosh. <laughs> Suddenly everything I thought I knew, I didn't know. I had to learn from scratch. Learning Arabic was harder than I thought. Understanding the customs was not familiar to me. I felt over my skis all the time. And, one, and so that's sort of the model in my brain when I talk about these things. 
we want to reserve a little humility around anything we learn where our expertise is merely from reading or only enhanced a little by experience and actually trust experts who've dedicated themselves to those fields who have experienced and encountered them at that deep level. So I think of experience and I believe it can be something that's either passive or active, but as you're describing it, experience is more passive and encounter is more active. I think you could say that, but I would put it more like this. You could have, for example, an encounter the first time you go in the kitchen to learn to bake, right? Like, I don't know what I'm doing. However, you could then, it becomes an experience that you repeat over and over. The the key issue with encounter, in my view, is the sense of losing control. So if, for instance, the first time that I ever play a musical instrument is a violin, that's an encounter. But then if I go on to play the cello or the piano, that might actually feel more like an experience because I have familiarity with music. I know how to read the music. I understand the function of the instrument. I know some of the skills. So encounter for me is like when you meet somebody who is truly unlike you, as opposed to reading about them or visiting them, it's actually incorporating them into your life and becoming in a relationship with that person. Encounters are often firsts. Sometimes they're breaking a rule, actually being willing to do a little violence to your habit of thinking or your habit of behavior so that you unearth a new insight. Encounter has danger. Experience does not. The internet has uh, caused a sort of throwback in our attention span, Julie, that Mm. is reminiscent of some of our earliest ancestors. What is hyper-focus and why is it a threat to critical thinking in modern times? Yeah, so um, this was the research that I did that overturned an assumption I had going into writing the book. And I like to mention that because that's what critical thinking is, the willingness to overturn an assumption. So I am a huge champion of technology, the internet. I defend it all the time. I had this concept that it was only making us better and brighter. You know, the phone is just an external hard drive for my brain. Like I thought this is how I could think about the internet. So I went into it thinking critical thinking is benefiting from all this additional access. And it is on a lot of levels, but what I did not know is what it was doing to our brains to have the internet on our phones. This seems to be where the real dividing line is. Our phones are designed to give us immediate access to everything we could ever want to look up or know. And we are reminded constantly of things we should wanna know. Oh, the Olympic scores, uh, the streak that's about to end on solitaire, the notification from Instagram that somebody has commented and I need to see it right now. These little pings of notification apparently drive us back to our primal brain where we were hyper alert at all times for the warthog hiding in the bush. We hear the grunt and now we've got to be alert Uh, for a downtick in temperature, which means got to go to the cave, right? Got to get my fur and put it around my body and make a, a little fire. So for millennia, human beings relied on hyper focus attention vigilant attention to survive. In the Middle Ages, once we had sort of monarchies, you know, across Europe and we had agriculture being cultivated, we got to take a breath. (laughs) We were not as afraid of the warthog. We were living in communities that provided some security to us. And around that time, 
handwriting and eventually the printing press made it possible for us to read, to actually have the time to not worry about the warthog. We could actually think a thought in peace. We created universities, libraries, monasteries to that end. And suddenly, over the last 1500 years, human beings have gotten to experience something brand new, what we call deep attention states of focus. And we can only do those when we feel safe, when there is no threat. So school is built on this model of quiet learning, being in a space where you can drop down and read patiently and let those insights percolate and have brand new opportunities to experiment with ideas. The internet came along, jumped on our phones, and using the technology of casinos, social media in particular, has plugged us back into hyperfocus. We are in a panic based on the jingles, the tingles, the, the pings, the, the little red dots. And so if we want to protect our ability to think well and deeply and allow insight to percolate, we almost have to treat this moment the way we treat physical exercise with the advent of a car, right? Cars drive us places. We don't walk 10 miles to town anymore. So now we got to hire a personal trainer or join a gym or run a marathon to stay physically fit. Our brains need deep focus exercise and we can do it with our families. We can have a read quietly time each day for 10 to 20 minutes. Do it as a family. Don't do it solo. Put all the phones in a basket, stick them in another room. Apparently you can't even be in the same room as the phone or it drains the attention mm. and get good at that again. I've noticed as I've reintroduced that habit into my life, that it's a relief, but it takes me seven minutes before I can calm down and I'm 60 and I remember deep attention states. So for our kids, it's truly a skill that we want to help them cultivate. Yeah, taking three or uh, three or four hour sessions in nature uh, per week can oh. be very beneficial as well. And I think that's a big reason this constant fear, this uh, this constant understanding that you're under threat is a big reason why mental health issues are so much more prevalent in urban settings than they are more rural settings where you're not constantly having to worry about a car turning a corner and not seeing you crossing the street or neon advertising constantly flashing in your face. I mean, it, it really is a nonstop process. As somebody who used to live in Chicago, I would feel that drain at times if I did not make that effort to, uh, to really unplug and just get away from it all. Gosh, I love that. I love that insight. I feel like that's not where I went with it. And I, I love it. I might have to steal it and cite it. I'm from Los Angeles. And I notice every time I land in LAX, I immediately think I'm going to be robbed or raped. It's just like an internal mechanism I grew up with. And I live in Cincinnati now, and I never feel that way. We don't realize the psychic cost of modernity. Right. And so I love that you said the antidote is to truly actually be out of it. And it does take a minute. Our kids are conditioned by all this stimulus. You know, when we were talking about video games before, one of the reasons kids love them is it's an adult tool that they get to drive. They don't have very much risk and adventure in a modern suburban experience. Can we? You know, I said, here's how you get your kid off the computer hand them some matches and send them outside. Let them burn something. Tell them they can wield a hammer. Teach them how to use a power saw. 
Uh, trust me, they will be bored with the computer instantly, but they are so bubble wrapped. We are so careful with them. We want them to just play with safe toys. Give them a dangerous toy. Let them do something hard, you know, <laughs> and they'll be more interested. Get them in nature. Let them climb trees. Let them swing from a rope. This is exactly what you're talking about. I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I think another good example of that is give a, a young child a giant present for Christmas, and it could be some cool electronic toy. By the end of Christmas Day, they're probably having more fun in the box than they are that toy that you spent $100 on. Now, I have two Montessori kids at home, Julie. Lots. By uh, the end of this semester, both will have done their uh, through kinder education uh, with the Montessori school. You write about the founder of the school system, Maria Montessori, saying that students can often be heard in her schools asking, help me do it alone. How does a parent abide by this request? I love that question and wonderful for your children. I have a professor who said to me that if Maria Montessori had been a man in her era, our entire education system would look different. Completely agreed. I loved that insight, and I've been a huge fan of her work ever since I started homeschooling. What Maria Montessori is admitting is that help helps. This is a saying we say in my company, Brave Writer, all the time. Help helps. <laughs> we want our children to feel autonomous, but they need to use us as the lever, the IKEA tool that gets it done. Instead of saying, I can't help because somehow I'm robbing my child of that experience, be in the mentor role. One of the other quotes of Maria Montessori that I love is she says it like this. She says, follow your child, but follow your child as his leader. So in other words, your child says to you, I want to be able to build my own rocket. Well, the solution isn't to tell your child, go build rocket. It's to say, oh, my child wants to build a rocket. How can I facilitate that happening? What can I do to support making that backyard rocket? And as you do it, don't just take over. If you're going to get online and shop for backyard rockets, put the iPad in their head, help them understand what keywords they could look up, evaluate it together, ask questions. How high do we want it to go? How much force? What budget do we have? So they feel like they're doing it alone, but they have the support of your capacities, which are basically money the capacity to research and transportation. That's what you have to offer your sweet little child who wants to do something big and wonderful. Are the obvious pitfalls of learning through experience relying too much on anecdote and forming an opinion on something? Yes, I mean, that's a succinct answer. I think what happens is that we are so married to our own lives that we're always looking for people to validate what I've gone through and sometimes we take that too seriously. It's possible that your one experience is truly unique to you in that moment and cannot be generalized. It's also possible that someone else's one-time unique experience matters. So we want to actually recognize, I use this concept in the book of asymmetrical reciprocity, which I got from Iris Marion Young. She's a professor at um, University of Pennsylvania or no, actually, I think she's at um, Pittsburgh. Anyway, she talks about how the tendency is to use your experience to evaluate someone else's. So I am not a, a person with a handicap. So if I look at someone in a wheelchair, I might use my able-bodied experience to imagine that their wheelchair experience is miserable, that they don't like it, 
that it's bad for them, that it limits what they can do. Instead of actually being curious about what their unique experience is from within them and letting their report be true. So the danger of experience and anecdote is that it tends to be a little myopic and a little me-centered. Yeah. Your suggestions for inciting an encounter include everything from tackling a first to breaking a rule. Where is that line, though, where breaking a rule goes from constructive to harmful, Julie? Uh, definitely any rule breaking that is a physical danger to self or others would be one of those, right? So if we lock the gate and say you can't swim because there's no one to watch, don't that rule should not be broken. That one needs to be honored. However, if we're trying to understand how something works, sometimes going against the grain helps you understand better. So the example I give in the book is if we're teaching punctuation, Punctuation is a language and it has to be mastered as a language, not as a series of rules. How do these dots, curves, and lines on the page impact how I'm reading? So when I was teaching commas to my kids, they would read a sentence and they'd pause in the right places, but it wasn't because of the comma, it was because they know how to speak. But if they're going to write a sentence meaningfully, including commas is part of that journey. So what we did is we just broke all the rules. We started by putting a comma after every word and reading the sentence as though the comma was meaningful, obeying it. Then we took all the commas out and we read without commas, which meant rushing through all the words and getting to the end without any meaningful pauses. And after doing that a few times, randomly putting commas in places they don't belong, our, my kids started to understand, oh, the comma actually has a role. And I can feel when it's coming now. I know when to put one in because I can feel and correlate that experience. So for me, breaking a rule is like taking apart the toaster rather than building one. It's getting to the inside and understanding how it works. Sometimes breaking a rule helps you. Even a child who says, I want ice cream for dinner. Might be an interesting experiment one night. Let's start with ice cream and work our way back to the chicken. Did we get a full meal? Did we fill up first? Why not find out? Let your kids do their own data collection, little experimenting, little research. Interesting science and experiment indeed. They would uh, argue that not only starting with ice cream for dinner, but also maybe having it for breakfast as well in my household. <laughs> now, part three of raising critical thinkers is the rhetorical imagination. What is the rhetorical imagination? So there is research that shows that by sixth grade, most kids have given up their imaginations. Like I read this and I, I felt so sad about it. This is so one depressing. of the reasons. So yeah, it's one of the reasons that you have your kids in a Montessori school because they work so hard to keep that alive. And I really think it's testing. I think it's the grade system. I think it's the um, thinking that imagination is around play and not around learning. So if you think back to when your kids were little, they adopted other viewpoints really naturally. They pretend to be a dog and they crawl on the floor and eat from a bowl. They put on Robin Hood capes and hats and then they steal from the pantry and feed their baby sister, right? They, they pretend, they decide that the only way to really know that experience is to pretend to have it. And by sixth grade, we're just testing them on the ideas. We're not asking them to inhabit anything. The reason I use the language rhetorical imagination is deliberate. I want our students to pretend to inhabit views they don't hold. 
for the sake of discovering more about those views. I want them to simultaneously hold space for a pro and a con argument to get to the place where they're almost like acting in a play. You know, when you have a student in high school who gets cast as the villain in a play, we don't worry that that child now is a villain. That child is just understanding the internal motivations and what kinds of words they would say and what context the villain would behave this way, but they're not actually becoming a villain. That is the kind of posture I advocate for high school and college students, recognizing that you can create this meaningful divider in your own mind of the person you are while you also inhabit the person someone else is, whether it's a researcher or a character in a fictional novel that you're studying or a belief in a philosophy class. Give yourself the opportunity to enter into the rhetoric of those fields and then follow where it goes. What problem is it trying to solve? What's at stake for that person? What community benefits? What community is harmed? What person is not addressed in this idea? We can only do that if we're not defensive and spending all of our time proving to ourselves that we are not that person. So that for me is a sort of window into what I mean by rhetorical imagination. Well, critical thinking is a nonstop process involving the ideas we previously discussed, reading, experience, and encounter. The fruits of that labor involves interpretation. What is the art of interpretation, and how can you tell uh, if what you're doing to try and help your kid get to this point uh, are, are working or are effective? So the best thing you can do for your kids is ask them open-ended questions, the kind that provoke them to reflect. What we're looking for is generation of insight. Uh, there's a, a philosophy in most of the critical thinking literature that I looked at that you should be more interested in getting it right than in being right. But I kind of took it a step further. I think the danger whenever we add the word right to the discussion is that we cut off access to people we don't agree with. So what I'm more interested in is getting it. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like getting the joke, right? It doesn't mean you agree or disagree with the joke. You just get it. You understand why it works. So if we're talking about other views, and we're talking about interpretation. The job of an interpreter is this. It's first to situate the text or the idea or the event in its original context. Who wrote it? For whom? For what purpose, right? And I have, <laughs> I have countless content questions to ask you to drill down really deep into that horizon of the author. But the second piece then is we have to also acknowledge flipping that camera around what we're bringing to the table in this moment. What language do we have that is used differently than that we use in a new way now? What is the modern understanding of those ideas that has changed since it was originally written? We have to pay attention to our horizon while we're reading this other horizon. Interpretation then is the capacity to bring the then and the now together and to offer a new insight, to get it for how it was for them, to get how it is for me, and then to generate something fresh. Here's the funny thing about interpretation. It is a vapor. It lasts for the moment. There is no one for all time interpretation. We would not have a Supreme Court if it were true that interpretation was once forever, we would just say, well, we all know what the constitution means. Interpretation is an ongoing journey. 
And we prepare our kids if we allow them to never think that they have the final say. Their job is to keep asking these questions. What's at stake? For whom? Whose voice are we listening to? Whose voice is excluded? Where did this idea come from? How has that language changed from the time it was used then and its use now? Who benefits from this idea? Who doesn't benefit? These are the kinds of questions that grow good interpreters. And individual interpretation not only can, but probably should change over time as well, which uh, speaks to your last chapter, which I'm a huge believer in, titled The Courage to Change Your Mind. Julie, when was the last time you changed your mind on something big? So I really shared it in this talk. I think I was under a misimpression that our brains were not being damaged by the internet. And that was a pretty big one for me to step off of. I'm a huge fan of Herman Kahn, the technological optimist from the 70s. And his basic thesis is the problems technology create, technology will solve. So I've just been carrying that banner since 1980. And for me, this was a major like comeuppance. Like you've got to admit that there's something neurological going on here and you don't get to just hide between technological solutions. So that was big for me. And I really reported in my own book. All right, last question, Julie. I'm gonna ask you about a hot button issue right now, but you are somebody who has spent your lifetime uh, uh, better understanding how to parent and how to educate kids as well. So I do wanna hear your opinion on this. Um, masking in schools, do you feel like especially because the U.S. seems to be one of the last uh, places on the planet that is still insisting that it's young kids mask in schools, that it is doing a form of damage that is going to be very difficult to uh, bring back to life over the long term. So the reason I, I, I don't want to be one of those horrible sidesteppers, but because my children aren't currently in school and were homeschooled, I think for me, the challenge of all of this has more to do with consistency. Like if everyone was masking, then maybe it would make sense. But right now it probably feels discriminatory against children who maybe more than anyone need access to full facial expressions for the sake of learning, communicating their needs. I, so that argument really holds water with me. Like I understand what's going on there. I also understand the vulnerability of students who are compromised, immunocompromised, and are hoping that the community environment will protect these kids. I, I'm not a scientist, but as a parent, I do absolutely sympathize with the feeling of it being an inconsistent policy that is unfairly punishing children. I do get that. Completely agree. That was a, a great opinion on there. You said you sidestepped it, but I think you answered that question really well. She is Julie <laughs> Bogart, a parenting and education expert and creator of the award-winning Innovative Brave Writer Program, which teaches writing and language arts to thousands of families each year. She's also the author of The Brave Learner and her newest book that we've been talking about today titled Raising Critical Thinkers, A Parent's Guide to Growing Wise Kids in the Digital Age. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Julie, thank you so much for the time today and thank you for this crucial book. Thank you for such an amazing interview. I thoroughly enjoyed that. It's my pleasure. Take care, Julie. Thank you. Join me next time when I speak with independent journalist Alexander Zaitchik on Owning the Sun, a people's history of monopoly medicine from aspirin to COVID-19 vaccines. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. 
You can watch, listen, learn, and connect for free at booksonpod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.